You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 48. Hello, everybody. Chris Lester here, coming to you from Metamore Studios in beautiful southern Wisconsin. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you and keep you up to date on my life and my writing. So let's get started, shall we? Today I'm bringing you the first half of Chapter 12 in my Metamore City novel, Things Unseen. If you're new to the show, or if you haven't listened in a while, you're going to want to go back and catch up, starting with the prologue in Episode 24. If you're up to date, then follow me onward to this week's spoilerific story recap. Our Metamore City police detectives, Catherine Catane and David Silverleaf, have found themselves in a tangled web of secrets and lies. At the heart of this mystery is the Telvari Rift, a place of potent arcane energies and strange magical life forms. Six people went to the rift and were caught in a mana surge, which twisted and mutated their bodies in a variety of ways. Even worse, they became possessed by magical symbionts native to the rift. By the time they realized what had happened, these symbionts were trapped in Metamore City, thousands of miles from home. And without the rift's life-giving energies, they were slowly starving to death. Two of their hosts, Bernard Travers and Hal Rains, have already died, their bodies having run themselves to ruin trying to support the beings trapped inside them. Unless Kate and David can find a way to help them, the others may be soon behind. So far, Kate has only spoken to one of the four survivors, Lady Mysteria Halloway, who has been turned into a powerful demonic-looking figure by the Rift's energies. Kate tried to convince her that their best chance of survival was to meet with Janus Starson, the field commander of the Lothanasi Order. Mysteria doesn't trust the Lightbringers at all, but without their help, it seems unlikely that Misty and her friends will be able to return to the Rift before it's too late. With time running out before the next death, Kate and David may have to resort to more drastic measures. Things Unseen A novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 12 Back at the Magic Affairs office, Kate sent a message to Count Halloway, informing him that Misty would return home later that day. She checked her voicemail and her inbox, but there was still no word from Ezekiel Kapler or Julia Mathias. "'I don't know about you,' she said to David, "'but I'm a little sick of being ignored. I think it's time we paid Lady Julia a visit.' David was preoccupied with his email, but she saw the tips of his ears twitch in interest." Obviously, she's been in communication with Misty, Kate continued. She must know that we're trying to help. Maybe she just doesn't have a secure way of reaching us. Maybe, David agreed, absently. Or maybe Zeke doesn't want her to talk to us, because he's afraid of getting his father in trouble. When Hal showed up at my apartment, he said, You have to stop them. Zeke and his dad, maybe? Possibly, David said. 
We should just go over to Julie's place and let her know what happened with Hal. Obviously, he never made it to our tax, so she may not know that there's a way to slow down the wasting effect. We'd be doing her a favor. Undoubtedly, David said. And you still think I'm about to screw this up. Diplomacy, David said. He pointed at Kate without looking at her. Exceptionally cheerful herding dog. She swatted his hand away. Look, if you've got any better ideas, spell them. And stop calling me a dog. It has negative cultural undertones. My apologies. He spun around in his chair and turned to face her. As I see it, we have a threefold problem here. We aren't sure how much control the symbionts have over their hosts' actions. We don't know where Lady Julia's loyalties lie. And she doesn't know our intentions, or whether we can be trusted. If you show up at her door without warning, without prior negotiation, she's going to act the way any cornered animal reacts. Fight or flight, Kate agreed, glumly. Damn it, you're right. She thought for a moment. We don't have time for a perfect diplomatic approach, but maybe we can meet her halfway. I'll get to work on Julia's amulet. Can you find a non-threatening way to get in touch with her? Maybe send her one of your little birdie friends? David smiled. As it happens, I've been working on something like that. He held up his little Nocturna's lily. These plants are parthenogenic. As far as I can tell, they're all clones of the original mother plant. Which means they have sympathetic resonance with each other, Kate said, following his train of thought. You think you could use that to send a message from one plant to another? And maybe more than that. The trick will be controlling which plant I'm transmitting to. There must be hundreds of these lilies in the city. Oof, Kate said, wincing. Yeah, let's not screw that up. The last thing we need is to broadcast these people's secrets to half the bigwigs in Metamore. Caution shall be my byword. David stood and took his plant with him. I'll be in lab two if you need me. I'll take three, Kate said, and rose to follow him to the lift. The arcane labs at Precinct 9 were far from the polished, state-of-the-art facilities that Kate saw in television dramas. Crammed into a dim and dismal corner in the basement level, the remnants of a past renovation that had stalled out due to lack of funds, they were windowless, cramped, and eerily quiet. Mages and alchemists on the force called them the pits. The computers were more than ten years old, wheezing along on scavenged parts, and the spellbooks hadn't been updated since before Kate was born. Her fourth-year monology classes had had better gear than this. Still, the captain kept the place stocked with all the fresh reagents his budget could afford, and the equipment, while old, was serviceable. With the more specialized gear she had picked up over the weekend, Kate could perform her enchantments here at least as easily as at her apartment. Hours passed as Kate fell into the familiar rhythm of ritual spellcasting. In many ways, it was like cooking. There were procedures to be followed, ingredients to be combined at the right times and in the right order, and a lot of waiting as each step of the spell ran its course. Unlike cooking, however, ritual magic required a sense of focused intent, a constant meditation on what each stage of the spell was supposed to accomplish. This was where the barren isolation of the labs was actually an asset— it reduced the chance of an ill-timed interruption wrecking the spell. Completing Misty's amulet over the weekend turned out to be a big advantage. Kate knew what to expect now, had a feel for the energies involved. 
Julia's amulet came together much faster and with less strain on Kate's mana reserves. By 2.30, it was ready for a test drive. Kate slipped the amulet over her neck and smiled into the mirror with Julia's wide, expressive lips. It was a strange sensation. The difference in their heights made it look like her head was about 20 centimeters lower than it actually was. Misty hadn't said anything about Julia gaining height from a rift exposure, so Kate doubted that would pose a problem. David was waiting patiently by the door when she came out. He had a couple of bags from Borsa Hut on the chair next to him, filling the hallway with the scent of sautéed beef and Berber spices. "'You're an angel,' Kate said. Her stomach growled in anticipation as she peeled back the paper and bit into the sandwich wrap and the hot, spicy mixture inside. David inclined his head, accepting the praise graciously. "'We have a breakthrough.' Kate's eyebrows went up. Quick work, partner. How'd you manage it? I set up a restriction on the sympathetic resonance that focused it by geographic location. We can attempt a call as soon as you're ready. Right after lunch, Kate said, around a mouthful of food. She followed him into lab two and looked at the setup David had crafted for the spell. The restriction spell used a GPS unit, of all things, to define the limits of the area that they wanted to contact. The address Misty had given them for Julia was already punched in on the display. Kate finished her sandwich wrap as quickly as possible, wadded the wrapper and bag into a ball, and loosed it in a jump shot toward the garbage can on the far side of the room. It bounced off the wall behind the can and went in. All right, let's do this. David gestured for her to sit inside one of the casting circles drawn on the floor, while he did the same across from her. The Nocturna's Lily and the GPS unit sat on the floor between them, surrounded by arcane sigils and connected by lines of power. David bowed his head and focused his mana, and the designs on the floor flared into light. Kate felt a pulse of energy go out from David, course around the circle, and vanish into the flower. An instant later it returned, subtly shifted in its character but still recognizable as the same signal. David looked up, caught her eye, and nodded. "'Julia Rachel Matthias,' Kate said. She put the force of her will behind the name, turning it into an arcane summons. If Julia was anywhere around and even slightly sensitive to magic, she would hear it. For almost a minute, Kate felt no response. Then a woman's voice erupted from the link, tight with fear and anger. "'Who are you? What do you want?' Kate suppressed a flash of vindictive satisfaction. Kind of spooky when your plants start talking to you, isn't it? Lady Julia, this is Detective Katane. Lady Holloway said I should let you know when your disguise amulet was ready. Another pause, shorter this time. Then a man's voice broke in. Ah, Detective, Lord Ezekiel said. I didn't realize Misty had shared this line of communication with you. She didn't. Kate admitted. But my partner and I didn't want to show up unannounced, so we found a workaround. Is this a good time for us to come and drop off the amulet? We can be at Julia's within the hour, but we can wait until dark if you'd prefer. I have no wish to inconvenience you further, detective, the lordling said. I'll send a man to retrieve the package. Kate met David's eyes across the circle. They narrowed in suspicion, mirroring her own thoughts. Given what Hal had told them, she didn't think it was a good idea to leave Julia's fate in the hands of House Kapler. 
It's no inconvenience, Kate said. Actually, Julia, would you mind if we come over? I have some information that I think I should tell you in person. Count Halloway's watching us like a hawk, and I'm not sure this line is secure. The line fell silent again, but only for a moment. Then, a cold little laugh from Julia. (laughs) I think you've done a fine job of proving it isn't, Detective. By all means, come join us, and bring your partner with you, if you would be so kind. Of course, Kate said. See you at about four? Lovely, Julia said. Until then, Detective. The spell ended then, so suddenly that Kate's ears popped as the air pressure dropped back to normal. She hadn't even felt it growing while the spell was active. David twitched and snapped his eyes open. They dispelled the link. He sounded as surprised as Kate felt. I didn't think Zeke and Julia had any magical talent, she said. It was the sort of thing that would have come up in their investigation. Wizard licenses were a matter of public record. It could have been a wand, David said, but he didn't sound like he believed it. Maybe, Kate said. Just the same, let's be careful on this one. I think your cornered animal analogy might have been right on the money. Lady Julia's apartment building was modest by noble standards. A mere ten stories tall, it stood amid green lawns and manicured gardens, in a quiet section of the Broadfield borough. As she stepped out of David's skimmer into the parking lot, Kate looked down at the solid earth and up at the clear blue skies overhead. The towering layer cake of the downtown boroughs couldn't even be seen from here, hidden behind mountains, trees, nearby buildings, and atmospheric haze. They were still within the Metamore city limits, but it seemed as unlike Metamore as a place could be. They checked in at the security desk, where a bored-looking guard directed them to Julia's apartment on the seventh floor. Kate saw discreetly placed video cameras and spell detectors on the ceilings, but no other guards were in evidence. Misty wasn't kidding about this place, Kate said. The paparazzi would never expect to find a Matthias living here. David's ears twitched thoughtfully, but he said nothing. Kate checked on the amulet again, which still sat securely at the bottom of her canvas grocery bag. The door to the apartment was plain steel, painted white, with a brass handle and a peephole. Kate pushed the button for the doorbell and waited. Silence hung in the corridor for a minute or so. Kate pushed the button again. David caught her eye, then took up station three paces away on the far side of the door. Kate was about to knock when the door opened revealing a dimly lit sitting room with white tile floors and black leather furniture. A wave of hot, damp air washed over Kate, making her feel like she had stepped into a greenhouse. A soft red glow emanated from behind the door. Welcome, detectives. Julia's voice came from the same direction as the light. Please, come in. Kate exchanged another look with David, who nodded once. Squaring her shoulders, Kate stepped through the door and then two long strides beyond it, turning as she went, until her eyes fell on the transmuted form of Lady Julia. She was not, as Kate had half expected, a rat morph like the rest of her family. Her skin was a swirling blend of colors, white and orange and vivid crimson, and the patterns glowed and shifted as Kate watched. 
Her hair had turned to something crystalline and translucent, like fiber-optic wires, each one lit from within with the same colors as her skin. The irises of her eyes were bright yellow, shot through with striations of red, and they shone in the dim light of the apartment. Heat radiated from her like an oven left on broil. She wore only a terrycloth bathrobe, which was dripping wet but drying rapidly. Kate could see wisps of steam curling off of the damp fabric, joining the already saturated air. Lady Julia smiled, a slow, sardonic expression. "'Sorry to keep you waiting, detective. I was in the bath when you arrived.' Kate forced a smile in return. "'No problem. It, uh, looks like you needed to cool off.' "'You might say that.' David appeared in the doorway and met Kate's eyes. She nodded, and he slipped inside. His ears flattened back against the sides of his head when he saw Julia. Ah, oh, he said. Lady Julia pushed the door shut and closed the deadbolt. So, Detective Catane, I take it that bag holds the illusion charm that Misty requested for me? Um, yes, Kate said. Though I'm afraid she didn't mention anything about temperature. Can you, uh, do anything about that? It's a little hot in here. I like the heat, Julia said calmly. Always have. Still, I suppose I could make a few accommodations. She closed her eyes, her brows knitting in concentration. On the opposite side of the room, a cloud of steam burst forth from a flower vase. The flowers withered and blackened, then crumbled to ashes around the now dry porcelain. The light faded from Julia's skin and hair, and the swirling patterns froze in place, now resembling an elaborate tattoo. The heat radiating from her body faded along with it. David stared in open fascination. Remarkable. I've never seen pyrokinesis with such fine control. How often do you need to draw off the excess heat? That depends on how much I care about the furniture, Julia said, her tone dry. As I said, Detective Silverleaf, I like the heat. She turned to Kate. Detective Catane, may I see the amulet? Wordlessly, Kate opened the bag and reached inside. Her fingers closed on air. What the? She opened the bag and found it empty. Looking for this? Kate jumped. The voice had come from the hallway to her right, which she was sure had been empty a second before. She turned and saw... The thing in the doorway was fresh from a sailor's nightmare. His skin was hairless and midnight black, and it glistened with a sheen like an oil slick. The facial features were stretched and smoothed out into something shark-like an abstract impression of humanity. The eyes were disturbingly large, round and dark like a seal's. He towered over Kate, nearly two meters tall, with muscles that looked like a bodybuilder's, and from the small of his back grew four oil-black tentacles, long, muscular, and lined with pale gray suckers. Kate was three paces back and had her gun out in a shooter stance before her logical mind caught up with her. Lord Ezekiel? The monster grinned, 
exposing a wide mouth full of white, cone-shaped teeth. He held up the amulet with one of his tentacles and gave her a shallow bow from the waist. At your service, detective. And that's where we're going to stop for today, folks. Now we've seen how the rift affected Zeke and Julia's bodies. Has it also affected their minds? What's going on behind the nightmare eyes of Ezekiel Kapler? And what will he and Julia think of Kate and David's offer to help? The story continues next week. Nicole Krauss said, Why does one begin to write? Because she feels misunderstood, I guess. Because it never comes out clearly enough when she tries to speak. Because she wants to rephrase the world, to take it in and give it back again differently, so that everything is used and nothing is lost. I don't have anything snarky to add to that. I just think it's beautiful. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 3,131 words this week, over the course of 5.5 hours, for an average writing speed of 569 words per hour. I wrote on 5 out of 7 days this week. Work on Rafa Kaliri and the Ghostly Bride is moving more slowly than I would like, but I'm making progress. I also got the official word from the Balticon New Media team, and we have a time slot. We'll be performing Metamore City Live on Sunday night, May 29th, at 6 p.m. in the Mount Washington Room. If you're coming to Balticon, tell all your friends to join you for the show. The room has seating for more than 100 people, and I'd love to pack this one out. And now, the feedback. Rosemary Tizzledown wrote in about last week's episode on the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group. She says... Wow, that scene with Morgan was awesome. I love the balance you've got going with her, and the social engineering thing is fascinating. I love conflicts like this, where two people are doing mental circles with each other. Morgan comes across most of the time as so self-contained and controlled that it's easy to forget that she's a very dominant predator who knows what she wants. Just because she chooses not to seize the object of her desire all of the time doesn't mean she's incapable of doing so in the situation warrants. She's a really interesting mix of cool rationality and feral instinct, with a swirl of strong human feeling in there to keep her from becoming a sociopath. I adore her utterly, and I don't think I've ever seen her particular personality type replicated in fiction. Most of the strong female characters I read tend to err more heavily in one of those three areas, and often miss most of another of the three legs, usually in the name of making them either more approachable or easier to dislike, and therefore be okay with hurting. It makes them less complex, which is a shame. Morgan is most definitely complex. I like that you don't make her an easy personality. Unquote. Thanks, Rosemary. Morgan is definitely not an easy personality. And that's one of the reasons it's so much fun to write her. She's a person who's been bent and broken in some major ways, and while some of those old wounds didn't heal without scarring, 
she feels to me like a whole person. Every time I write her, I learn something new about who she is. Rosemary continues, And in response to feedback talking about feeling unsafe in bathrooms, I realized as I was listening that I do know a little of what that's like, thanks to grade school bullying. The bathrooms in elementary and middle school did not necessarily have locks, and the other girls liked to kick the doors in if they knew one of their victims was in there. I got to the point where I was afraid to use public restrooms at all, and would plan the day as best I could so I wouldn't have to use one. To this day, I still feel a little anxiety using any bathroom other than my own, and I hadn't made that connection until listening to your show this morning. So, thanks? You're welcome, Rosemary. Remember, folks, that's The Raven and the Writing Desk, your home for compelling characters, worlds of wonder, and unearthing deep-seated emotional trauma. Tell your friends! Jim Miller sent me this message through Facebook. Chris, love Metamore City. As a 30-plus year police officer, I am always looking for that distraction to help me unwind the stress that is built up from my profession. I'm also a fledgling writer, so I've been working on a piece that combines my profession with my love of sci-fi fantasy. Do you have any pointers? Also, I know you have mentioned in a few of your broadcasts about a program that you use to help motivate you to type X amount of words— What is this program? I usually listen to your podcast to and from work, so I never write down the name of the program. Unquote. Hi, Jim. If you've been keeping current with my updates on this show, you know that the question of how to get motivated and stay motivated is one that I've been wrestling with myself. Life throws lots of curves at us, and sometimes those shake us out of good habits and into bad ones. Nobody's immune, so don't beat yourself up over that. The most important thing I've learned, though, is that I need a way to be held accountable and a way to receive feedback. When I know I'm going to have to come on here and tell you all about my writing performance for the week, it makes a difference. When I get voicemails and emails from people who have consumed my stories and had a reaction to them, it makes me want to keep going. There's also the magic spreadsheet, which I think is what you're referencing in your letter. It's not really a program, just a shared Google spreadsheet where people post their daily word counts. The spreadsheet assigns points to you based on your consistency and the number of words you write, so there's an aspect of gamification to it. And because you may have friends who are logging their own scores on the spreadsheet, it has that element of accountability to it as well. I'll put a link to the magic spreadsheet in the show notes. These tactics may or may not be what you personally need in order to be successful in your writing. Everyone is different, and we have different levers on our personal psychology. The important thing is, try something. Give it your best effort, and see how it works for you. If it's not working, then try something else. Good luck, Jim, and thanks for writing in. Hi, Chris. This is Chechi Judy, the Polish blonde in central Massachusetts. And I haven't been sending you feedback uh, since you started Things Unseen because I have read the story, loved it, but I don't want to accidentally give anything away, just like another feedbacker mentioned in an earlier episode. But I did have a couple of things that I wanted to bring up. First of all, have you ever posted a timeline of where all these stories fall in the Metamore City timeline? What got me curious is the reintroduction of Evan Salindi, 
whom I remember well from making the cut, but all the other stories like The Three Graces, Just Coffee, The Muse, all of these, I, I just wanted to know where they kind of fall in the grander scheme of the things from making the cut and things unseen and then going on to the lost and the least, how much time has passed. You know, we've got some common characters in there, but not everybody. So I kind of want to know where everything falls in. And I, I'm sure some other people may be interested as well. Hi, Judy. I've put up a rough timeline of Metamore City stories on the metamorecity.com website. I'll include a link in the show notes. As you'll see, some stories are nailed down very precisely in their chronology, while others are not. The second thing, are we ever going to get the backstory from Morgan Drawling? She has a much bigger part to play in Things Unseen, as opposed to making the cut, if she has a part in making the cut. It's been a while since I listened, so I've got to get back to that, re-listen to that. But I do remember The Huntress, and that was a really good story. So, and just these introductions want me to know, well, okay, what happened to her? You keep hinting at it. Are we going to get that story? Please? I did work out a basic outline of Morgan's backstory, and that information is on the writer's wiki for Metamore City authors to reference. My dear friend Dawn Phoenix, who voiced the female characters in the previous attempt at a Things Unseen audiobook, actually took up the challenge and wrote Morgan's backstory in a novel she called Mirrors. She had written most or all of a first massive draft of the story, which was about half a million words, but then, tragically, her laptop was stolen. Dawn didn't have any backups, so she lost everything. The last time I talked to her, she still wanted to take another crack at rewriting Mirrors, so unless she tells me she's abandoning the project, I'm going to let her finish it. Once she does, then she and I will take a look at it together and work on editing. I hope Liminal Corvid Press will be able to release it someday. And then, in and around making the cut, you introduce some characters and short stories or the prologue, and I wondered where they disappeared to, because they seem to have faded away in the story like ink on exposed paper. Michael Pirelli is the person that I thought of, for example. Where did he disappear to? Michael is hard at work in the Precinct 9 homicide section. We haven't seen him because Kate and David work magic affairs, not homicide, so Michael's got his own cases to deal with. We'll be seeing him again in The Lost and the Least, along with Will and Callie from The Muse. All three of them have important parts to play in that story. And so does Jared Tamlin from Making the Cut. As for the characters in the prologue of Things Unseen, the mystery of their disappearance is continuing to drive the plot in the present day. And that's all I can say for now. In last week's feedback, Sarah brought up the body awareness issue, which you commented on for Misty. I'd also like to add a point or two because I have a very good friend who's blind. She went blind at 20. And when you lose a sense, your others develop to make up for it. Your hearing becomes sharper. Your sense of smell becomes sharper. So you may get a little bit more body awareness for things changing around, which also may be, you know, you know, you can feel somebody walk into the room if you may not exactly hear them, but it's a soft footfall. You have better hearing to hear that. You may feel a breeze from a door closing or something. 
you can make up for it. That's true, and it's sort of the opposite of the problem Misty has. Misty's body is trying to cram new sensory inputs into a somatosensory cortex that's already developed, so it's going to decrease her bandwidth for paying attention to other things in that same general area of the body. When you lose a sense, your brain stops getting signals from those neural pathways, and other neurons in adjoining parts of the brain can start expanding into the dead zone to take advantage of the unused processing power. It's not that your ears and nose become more sensitive per se, but your brain now has more bandwidth to process the information coming from them, so the resolution of those senses is increased. However, in Misty's case, she's got a tail and horns now, and that would definitely shift your center of balance. It's like putting on a pair of ice skates or rollerblades for any of us regular mortals. Once you put those things on, your center of balance shifts. So you've got to adjust yourself to that new center of balance before you can really get going. You fall on your ass a couple of times, but you eventually get there. So, and I also thought of, is there a track or something in the temple where Misty is hiding so that she can get used to her new center of balance with the horns and the tail? Because I can't imagine that they really have an exercise room. I'm guessing that they get their exercise in other ways, if you know what I mean. That may be true, but it's a fairly big temple complex, and Misty's a pretty resourceful person. I'm sure she's been finding ways to adapt to her body, even if it's just doing laps around the sanctuary or going up and down the stairs. And speaking of my good friend who's blind, she's never gotten the hang of computers. I'd like to share your stories with her, and I have some of and I have shared some of those that are short ones that I can edit to fit on a CD. Does your Creative Commons license allow for me to edit, say, Making the Cut into a couple or several long audio files that I can put on a CD and share with her? I'm talking about editing out the podcast introductions and any feedback or other comments and announcements, not changing the story at all. The first season of the Metamore City podcast was released under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial, share-alike license. That means that you could cut those episodes down to create a seamless version of the story, as long as you didn't try to sell it, you didn't make it sound like the story was written by or belonged to someone else, and you included a statement that it was released under the same type of Creative Commons license. For making the cut, preserving the entire credit sequence between the last chapter and the epilogue should be sufficient to satisfy those requirements. However, Metamore City Season 2 and The Raven and the Writing Desk are both released under an attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. Under the terms of this license, the audio file must be distributed exactly as you received it. You can burn a copy to a CD or copy it to a flash drive, but you can't change the file's contents in any way. Doing something more than that would be considered a derivative work, and that's not permissible under the license. To create derivative works of any kind, you need specific written permission from the author of the work in question. So it's not impossible, but it's not covered by the Creative Commons license. You need a separate licensing agreement for that, the same way that Nobilis Reed needed a licensing agreement to sell his stories in Metamore City. I'll talk to you more about this by email. 
Hi, Chris. It's Michael Spence. I've just finished hearing your most recent episode, and there were three things I wanted to check with you about. One, well, okay, yes, I very much enjoyed seeing or hearing the interplay between Evan and Morgan. These two, I, I will not say they deserve each other, because they certainly don't. At least she doesn't deserve him. But, hey, what can I say? But I did want to say how much I appreciated when Morgan and others talk doctor, in Kate's phrase. Your training in biology has added special depth to the world building in Metamore City because, well, you're dealing with exotic critters, exotic people, and exotic people who resemble critters. So we're talking life form language, and you have a remarkable ability to put that in language that is understandable and convincing. I'm very much impressed, and uh, that's one of the things I enjoy about Metamore City. Thank you. It's always fun when I can blend my science geekery with the fantasy. And as for who deserves whom in the Morgan and Evans subplot, just wait. The second one is, remembering back to Chapter 7, I meant to let you know at that point how much I enjoyed hearing that chapter. Brings back memories of when you read part of it at Balticon. I particularly liked hearing about Osric. Gotta say, I identify with this guy, especially in my writing where I try to defy the old joke and accentuate the couple of good points here and there while minimizing the lot of bull in between. (laughs) Nicely played, sir. And for those of you who aren't in the know, Michael used to write a blog called Brother Osric's Scriptorum, which was the namesake for Osric in this book. Not that I'm saying anything about Michael being full of bull, mind you. The name just happened to work especially well with Kate's insult about the girls calling him Ox. Finally, I wanted to ask about your schedule, the part of the schedule that's devoted to writing. The reason for this is the way the show runs, it sure sounds as though, yes, all of this is coming hot off the writing desk. And the inference that it's easy to draw is that all of this wonder, and I use the term especially after listening to To Walk in Shadow, all of this is coming down there in the first draft? My mind boggles. Now, I'm one of those of whom it's true that the true writing is done in the rewriting. So my question is, do you give yourself time to rewrite before podcasting all of this? And if not... When do you get to do it? First of all, let's talk about Things Unseen. Obviously, this book came out in 2013, so it's not fresh off the writing desk in the strictest sense. When I wrote Things Unseen, I had a small group of beta readers who read through it and gave me feedback, and I used their comments to make some changes and fix some problems. Things like clarifying character thoughts and motivations, fixing continuity errors, etc., This was not rewriting so much as editing for clarity, but it probably added a couple of thousand words to the final draft. For most of my editing, though, I used the spiral method that J. Daniel Sawyer talks about in his new podcast, NaNoWriMo Every Month. As I'm writing, I periodically go back and read through what I've written in the last several chapters. 
A lot of times I can spot mistakes during this process and correct them, and I'll do little tweaks to grammar or sentence structure or change a few words here and there to make character voices more distinct from each other. Occasionally I'll find something I'm not sure how to fix, and I'll reach out to subject matter experts for help. There are a couple of big fight scenes in Things Unseen where Dan Sawyer read the first draft and said, This is wrong. This is a mistake that a trained police officer wouldn't make. This is a tactical situation the Lightbringers would have handled differently, and so on. And I would use that input to fix or rewrite the scene before I kept going. Whenever possible, I fix those problems before I finish the story. So when it's done, it's done. With the exception of things unseen and missing pieces, all of the stories you've heard on The Raven and the Writing Desk are essentially first drafts, tweaked along the way through the use of the spiral method. Missing Pieces was another story where I had to seek out a subject matter expert. I wanted someone who was actually transgender to read it and comment on it before I released it. In general, I agree with Dan's statement that the first draft is the draft that is closest to your subconscious mind, so it's the closest reflection of your distinctive voice as a writer. If you edit too deeply, if you change too much, you risk domesticating the story and losing that voice. For more on this, check out Dan's podcast, because he explains it much better than I can. That's nanorimoeverymonth.com. That's it. I shall do my best to keep it on the bright side, and I heartily recommend you do the same. But the dark side has those wonderful cookies. Talk to you later. Hey, Chris. It's Sarah Testarossa. I listened to most of the uh, story, and I have to stop listening for a minute because I wanted to leave a commentary before I forgot. Did you just quote Silence of the Lambs? Or not quote, but did, did you take a line from that deliberately? I just asked because the fly away little starling, fly, 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 in Anthony Hopkins' voice is what came to mind when Morgan was telling Evan to be gone. Hi, Sarah. Yes, that was indeed a Silence of the Lambs reference. Congratulations. In the three years that the book has been out, you're the first person to mention spotting it. I am really glad that she bested him in this. That was um, beyond being cool because, I mean, Morgan. I love Morgan. And I've already said that Evan, I don't really, I I don't even. (laughs) But I was very pleased with how she handled the situation, and that was pretty hot, too. I am glad that her pretty much pinning him to the floor did not end up like many of those types of scenes did and was more of the, I don't fucking trust you, so let's try something different. That was very cool. I am looking forward to this date. I don't even know what's this kind of ridiculous in a way. I know it ties into the main story, but part of it seems like a side story that's going to be just... I don't know. For some reason, I'm just having trouble finding words because I feel a little bit bad for Evan because despite the fact that he's a brilliant social engineer, well, she, she's Morgan Drowling. I mean, come on. Also, the uh, Do You Dance reminded me of Ava and Danny in the club back in Making the Cut. So that was kind of amusing to me because I was just thinking about Evan's other half, so to speak, and I wonder what Morgan would think of her because she's very different. I think she'd find Evan more fun, probably. Pardon me while I grin maniacally and slowly walk away. Just wait for Chapter 13, Sarah. 
If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. Our fan group is at Fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And you can support the show by making a monthly pledge on Patreon at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. The links will be in the show notes. That's all for this week. Come back next time for more fiction fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2013 and 2016 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.